It's wonderful to see a good crowd gather today together. Wonderful to know that we have so many that are watching online and that will be watching uh, perhaps a little bit later today as well. Wonderful to have new families uh, with us. We're so glad uh, to welcome uh, David and Susan and the girls. Uh, we're so thankful that y'all are a part of our family, and we are very, very blessed uh, to see new folks coming and joining us. What a blessing. Uh, what a blessing that is. Of course, with the uh, announcement uh, over the last few days of the president and the first ladies um, testing positive for uh, the COVID-19, I thought it would be a good idea for us to begin this morning's uh, lesson in prayer. Father, we recognize that you alone are creator, you alone are God, you are the sustainer of the universe through your marvelous word, just as you created the universe through your marvelous word. Father, we recognize that uh, this world is not meant to go on forever and that one day you'll uh, say time's up and um, we'll all appear before you and we'll live with you for eternity. And we pray, Father, that you would hasten that day along. But Father, we know that in the meantime, each day, each moment gives uh, the sinner another chance to repent, gives us another chance to become closer to you to be more of what we need to be to our neighbor as we reach out to them uh, with your love. And so, Father, along with that, there are uh, times that we go through that are especially difficult and especially challenging, and this year has been one of those times. And it uh, is not letting up yet. And so, Father, we ask that you would be with um, all of those... um, millions of people around the world who have uh, been affected by the novel coronavirus. We pray that you would be with those in this country, those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, those who have loved ones um, who are uh, in danger or ill right now. And we are grateful once again for our first responders, for the medical teams, for others, Father, law enforcement, EMTs, so many that uh, will uh, put their lives on the line for the sake of others. And we pray that you would bless them and those who love them and who are worried for them. And so, Father, in a special way today, we pray for our country. We know that just four weeks from Tuesday is Election Day, and we ask your will to be done. And we pray, Father, that as the events unfold over these next uh, weeks, that uh, we will be able to see uh, your will carried out. And Father, we ask that you would bless our country and our leaders and our citizens. That you would help us, Father, to um, look to you for guidance and for help and comfort and hope in a very difficult time. Father, we know that you have a great history of bringing good out of bad. And so we pray, Father, that uh, you will look down upon us with great and tender mercy and see all the difficulties and the challenges and the threats that we have experienced and that we are experiencing and that you would bring good from those and that you would bless and that you would forgive and that you would heal our land. 
Father, we pray a special prayer for President Trump and for First Lady Melania Trump. We ask that you would uh, bring them healing, that you would help them, Father, that uh, they will not uh, suffer uh, extensively because of this disease. And we pray that you would help all of those that are working with them and helping them to do just the right things, uh, to be instruments in your hand for, to bring about their recovery and their their healing. Father, we pray for others who are in government and who are uh, on the staff of those who lead us, who represent us as a nation, that you would uh, bless them in their recovery as well for those who have tested positive and who are having to go through difficult times or those who have been exposed. We pray, Father, that the numbers uh, would uh, not be extensive of those who contract the disease, who are needed Father, to help uh, lead and serve in our government. Father, we pray uh, for uh, Vice President Biden and for Senator Harris that they will not contract this disease and their families. We pray, Father, for um, all of those who are at work in this uh, difficult time that uh, you'll bless them and that you'll protect them and that you'll use them uh, to bring about your will. Father, we pray for our uh, congressional leaders and for all of our uh, congressmen and women and our senators. We pray for Speaker Pelosi and for her family. We pray, Father, for Senator McConnell and his family and for all of those who work with them in the House and in the Senate, that you will help them to do uh, the work of, of the people, the work of this nation, uh, your work, as, uh, as your will would have it and that you would uh, bless them in their endeavors. Father, we, uh, we pray for our uh, Supreme Court justices, and we pray for Judge Barrett and her family, and for those who will be um, uh, examining uh, her and considering her as the nominee of the president for the Supreme Court. We pray that, uh, again, that your will would be done and that uh, things would go as you would have them to go. Father, we know you see the big picture in all of this. We know that none of, nothing that's happened is a surprise to you. We know that nothing that's going to happen will be a surprise to you. And for that, we're grateful, Father. Uh, for that, we're so grateful. And so we're reminded this year that our trust is fully and completely and 100% in you. And we're grateful for the way that you provide for us, especially in this nation, such a, uh, such a blessed nation. And we pray, Father, that you would be with our citizens that perhaps today are not feeling so blessed. We pray that you would be with um, all of the leaders, all of the um, people who are called in law enforcement to protect and to serve. And we're so thankful for them and their families and the, the difficult time that they have been through and the difficult days and nights that they have ahead. And yet, Father, they answer that call. And we are a grateful people for that. Father, just, uh, just bless us in this time, in this moment. And we pray that you would bless us as a church. Father, we know that you have put us with a circle of people and our families, uh, our friends, our co-workers, our fellow students, our church, our community. And we know, Father, that you have called us uh, to be uh, your light in this world 
and very difficult times. And so we pray that you would help us to be people of hope, to be people who have experienced the loving hand of God and who let that loving hand be seen in our lives and that we are willing, Father, to share uh, that blessing with others. Father, we know that in spite of all of the difficulties that we see around us, that there is something that's stable. There is something that is consistent. There is something that can never fade away. And that is your word. And we are especially thankful for that word today, that absolute truth. That word, Father, that not only reveals you and reveals your will, but that word that brings us into a right relationship with you and reminds us of our ultimate home around your throne, in your presence for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe in the inspired and authoritative word of God. This series, What I Believe and Why, um, this is one of those lessons that I would probably kind of thought about doing first. Because I think this one is foundational for everything else. With everything that's going on in our world today, I kind of changed that around a little bit and waited a little bit on it. And uh, reminded us that, uh, that this is still our Father's world, which is where we began uh, this series, uh, the beginning of last month. And, and now here we are. I believe in the inspired and authoritative word of God. And I wondered about how to title this lesson, and so you see what I ended up with. Absolute truth? Absolutely. There are many in our culture and in our society today that would answer that differently. They would say, no, there, there is no absolute truth. No, truth is basically kind of what you determine it should be. And so I want us this morning for the next few minutes to consider that, to consider what Scripture teaches, and to especially consider today the specific words of Jesus of Nazareth. Because I think it's one thing for us to say, well, yeah, of course the law of Moses is there, and everyone in the Old Testament days thought that was the word of God. Yeah, the prophets are there in the Old Testament. Everyone in those days considered that the word of God. Sure, there were apostles like Paul and Peter and others who wrote about how the church should be, and that's, you know, the word of God. But those things are, you know, th those things are secondary. Those things are secondary to the words of Christ. And Jesus had a different take. Jesus' take was not that this is, uh, this is the absolute truth. Jesus' take was more... Um, this is the way I want you to live, but if you don't, that's okay, because I love you and I accept you anyway. That is, in many ways, the message that we hear today. And I want to address that, because I disagree. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's fair to what Jesus actually said and how he actually lived. Absolute truth? Absolutely. Let no one question 
I believe in the inspired and authoritative word of God. And so a few things about that. First of all, I believe in absolute truth. You know, several years ago, we probably wouldn't have to have this point in the sermon, right? Some of you that are as old as I am, some of you are a little bit older, some of you are a lot older. Uh, there are a lot of us that remember a day and time when absolute truth was just understood and accepted. Everyone felt there was absolute truth. Now, we might disagree with what that was, and we might even agree that absolute truth is Scripture, but we might disagree on how that's to be applied But it wasn't until fairly recently, if you talk about the history of the world, it wasn't until fairly recently that that whole issue of, is there even absolute truth at all, became a question. And if our culture, if our society, if our kids and our grandkids and our friends or even ourselves, if we're asking that question, then it's appropriate for us to consider. And we must not be fearful about talking about it because I think the Bible addresses it. I believe in absolute truth. Tim Keller, a wonderful preacher and writer of preaching, um, uh, wrote this in a a Twitter message uh, about a month ago. He said, two seemingly contradictory currents mark our society. There is a denunciation of all claims of absolute truth. Yet there is also a fanaticism in which one position or group is absolutely right. Nothing is ambiguous and divergent views should be destroyed. (laughs) Do you get that? Watching television, looking at the internet, getting on social media. Two divergent views. One is uh, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And then the second one is basically this. I have the absolute truth. (laughs) And you must agree with me or else you are crazy or ignorant or evil. And for some reason or another, they don't see the contradiction there. Jesus opposed both of those statements, that there is no such thing as absolute truth, and that unless you agree with me, you are evil and wrong and ignorant. As Jesus approached people, he said, there's not a single one of you that can say either of those things. Jesus condemned that in his teaching and in his actions, and so should we. While we acknowledge our own humanity and act with humility, we unapologetically affirm our belief in absolute truth. We'll share towards the end of the lesson about speaking the truth in love, and we have to do that. You've heard me say that many times over the last few years, because I think it is very lacking in the discussion that is going on in our culture today. We acknowledge our humanity. We acknowledge uh, that we are human, that we can't understand everything perfectly, and that we could be wrong. And so we approach that discussion with a a certain degree of humility, but we approach the discussion and we affirm, first of all, the belief in absolute truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only the truth. And I want us to talk about terms for a moment. 
because they're, when you say, make a statement like that, people hear different things. And I want us to, con, uh, to, to dis, di- differentiate between truth and opinion. Because what I just said, you can't say about opinion. <laughs> there are a lot of different opinions. There's your opinion and there's my opinion. But when it comes to absolute truth, there is not your truth and my truth. There, there is the truth. And our goal is to try to figure that out. In all our humanity, in all our limitations, in all our experiences, we're trying to find the truth. And then, of course, the next step is to seek to live by it. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only the truth. You know, I wish I would have thought of that reasoning when I was about 10 years old and being talked to by my mother. (laughs) That would have been very helpful if that were true and if I had thought of that. Well, Mom, that's your truth. My truth is it's okay for me to stay at Gene McPhail's house and play football in the street an hour past dark. That's my truth, Mom. And Mom, my mother would, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly how she would respond. She would not be pleased. Let's put it that way. We acknowledge our humanity and our limitations, but without an objective, absolute truth, we become slaves to current thought and culture, to whatever the popular subjective wave of public opinion takes hold. That's the price you pay when you say there is no such thing as absolute truth. Then what you're saying is, okay, whatever my current culture decides, that's what we're going to go with. That's going to be our truth. And you look at just the history of this country, which is not very long as countries go and as world history goes, and you see a great broad changeover of opinions and values because we're human and we are people of a certain time and space and culture. And sometimes I think we get it close to right, and sometimes we get it as far away from right as you can get. And we acknowledge that. We see that in the history of our own nation. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, am I going to turn away from absolute truth and say, well, let's just all take a vote. This is a democracy after all, and whatever we decide is true, that's what will be true today. And that, that just won't hold water. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is only the truth. I don't think any of us wants to be subjected to a law of the land and of existence that says whatever the current culture decides, I'm going to go with that. And we certainly don't want our children and our grandchildren deciding that's how they're going to live. That because my culture and my friends and uh, their parents and my uh, circle say that it's okay, then it must be okay. I don't think any of us wants to live by that standard. And we certainly don't want our loved ones to live by that standard. So if you're not going to live by that standard, then you have to say, okay, then what is that absolute truth? What is the truth that 
is something that is consistent throughout time, throughout human history. I believe in absolute truth, but what is that absolute truth? Well, I believe that the absolute truth is found in the Word of God. I believe that. Now, I have several scriptures there listed for you, starting with Ephesians chapter 4 which is a a letter, an epistle from the Apostle Paul guided by the Holy Spirit to a church, just like our church, the church at Ephesus. And they were going through stuff just like we go through stuff. And they were a diverse group, just like we're a diverse group. They had different gifts. They had different interests. They had different passions. They had different beliefs. And Paul addresses that in the book of Ephesians, and especially in chapter 4, I believe. And and he says that I want you to live a life that is worthy of the calling you've received. And then he's going to talk about what that looks like on a practical level in a church setting. And so reading the book of Ephesians and others like it is is a, a great activity and exercise. If you read it with your eyes open and hear him talking to a specific church in a specific situation with eternal principles that apply to us today as well. He talks about their attitude in verses 2 and 3, to be humble and gentle and respectful and considerate, to act with love. That's the atmosphere of the, of the church that will bring unity. And then in verses 4 through 6, he, he gives you the basis for that unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And there's no way that our culture today is going to accept those verses. No way. But that is the word of God. And And so we live by that. We don't live by that arrogantly. We don't live by that cruelly. We live by that humbly. But we live by that, and we affirm that. And we try to uphold that. And and it's interesting that the very next verse in verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he talks about how we have all of these ones, and then he says, And yet we're different. (laughs) We're different. We have different gifts. The church has different needs. The community has different needs. So God has prepared us for that. But it makes living together hard. Whether you're talking about a church or a family or a society, the differences help us be better, but they also challenge us. And so for the rest of the book, really, he talks about how do you, how do you live with that tension? that oneness and unity of the church, and also that diversity. The diversity doesn't take away absolute truth. But part of that absolute truth calls us to live a certain way, and that's humbly and considerately, respectfully, with love. So in the midst of all of that, Paul writes these words in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 12. Christ gave us these gifts, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal is maturity. The goal is to be what God wants his church to be. 
Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Welcome to 2020. (laughs) That's exactly where we live. Tossed back and forth with whatever wind and current is out there. Whatever you're hearing or reading on social media or on the cable news or on the network news or whatever you have decided in your own mind is the way things ought to be. (laughs) Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. How do you not do that, Paul? Verse 15, instead, instead of that, Instead of latching our goal and our ship to whatever the current star is, instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The head is not whoever wins the next election or the last election. The head is Christ. And so instead of going about with whatever the culture currently loves, we speak the truth in love and we grow. And we mature to be what God wants us to be, to be more like Christ. And that's how the church functions. I believe that the absolute truth is found in the word of God. Other passages there from Paul to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, Peter and 2 Peter, both affirm the inspiration and authority of the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, Paul tells Timothy or inspired, and it's profitable for everything that a person of God needs today. That doesn't mean we don't read other books. It doesn't mean we consider what others have said, because it's hard to try to understand what's in here. And again, we approach it recognizing that we're human, (laughs) and we need help. And so that's what the church is for, to help each other. Figure that out. Go back and forth with it. Grow and the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter writes at the end of Second Peter. And just like with Paul in Ephesians 4, he writes that against false teaching and giving in to whatever the culture is saying. He says, instead of that, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not grow in grace and not knowledge, not grow in knowledge and not grace. Grow in He says earlier in the book that people didn't just make these words up. (laughs) They were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. These aren't just cleverly invented stories that we're telling you. This is the word of God. Last year in October, when our lives were simpler, (laughs) um, I was preaching a series on building faith, and I have a resource on your sermon outline from October 6th, 2019 to the sermon building a credible faith and i shared some of these statistics 
then. The Bible is by far the most attested of all ancient documents. And when you compare the manuscript evidence of Scripture with the evidence of others, you realize there's far, far more evidence that the Bible is true than of anything else that comes from uh, any of those eras or even more recently. For example, the Iliad of Homer, over 1,900 manuscripts, Caesar's Gallic Wars, over 250 manuscripts. And if that's all you know, that's pretty impressive. How does the Bible stand up to that, Bill? Well, the New Testament has over 23,000 manuscripts, including over 5,600 Greek manuscripts, the language that it was written in. Consider also that manuscript evidence of other ancient documents, such as the Gallic Wars or the Iliad, that that evidence is mostly from centuries after the time of the original works, while the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Bible are within decades of the original writings and some others within a few centuries. It goes back pretty close to the time they were written. Sean McDowell says, how do the New Testament documents compare with other ancient books? A stack of existing manuscripts from the average classical writer would measure about four feet high. Yet the New Testament manuscripts would stack to more than one mile high. And so when you're asking, well, which one is the most attested? Which one is the most reliable here? You can see that the New Testament is far more reliable and other historical documents that seem to not be questioned. So you might say, okay, Bill, so the Bible is God's word, the absolute truth, but Jesus never thought that was a big deal, right? Jesus was only concerned that we love one another and treat each other right. Right? Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Jesus was concerned about those things. But those verses are not the only verses in the Gospels. And so a casual reading of Matthew 7, for example, that starts out, judge not so that you won't be judged, and then progresses very quickly into Jesus saying, there are some things that you need to make good and righteous judgments about. The will of God. Enter through the narrow gate, verse 13. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus says it matters which gate you go through. And the right one, not very many people want to go through it. He tells us that, we'll, that people will be able to tell what's true and what's false by the fruits. What kind of lives they live. What kind of things lie in their wake. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's the difference? Well, one was concerned and on the path to do the will of the Father, and the other one wasn't. And then he closes chapter 7 with the great story of the wise man and the foolish man. This great children's song, but he's using that as an illustration to say, the ones who hear my words and do them and obey them are like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the ones who hear my words and then go off and do whatever they wanted anyway, they're like the foolish man who built his house on sand. 
It was a big deal to Jesus that we follow his teaching, that we live according to absolute truth. The Gospel of John is filled with examples of this. At the very beginning, John says, the word became flesh in verse 14 and lived for a while among us, full of grace and truth, not one or the other, grace and truth, not grace only, not love only, not accepting others only, but grace and truth. Absolute truth. In chapter 8, Jesus talks to Jews who had believed in him. And he told them this, if you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples. Then you will know what? The truth. And the truth will set you free. But you're not going to know that unless you're committed to doing his will. Imperfectly, of course. Again, acknowledging our humanness. But that's the path we're on. That's our desire, is to find out what that absolute truth in God's word is and to live by it and to help each other do exactly that. In John 12, Jesus said, look, I'm not going to condemn you if you disobey my words. The very words that I have spoken will condemn you at the last day. I am the way and the truth and the life, he said in that great verse of John 14, verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then you keep reading. You say, yeah, but didn't Jesus say really all we have to do is love him? Well, he tells us we have to love him, but he also tells us what that looks like. And he tells us that in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. The ones that love me, Jesus says, are the ones who will be obedient to me. They're not just going to offer lip service. They're not just going to say, well, that's nice, but I'm going to go ahead and live however I want to live anyway. As he prays for us and for his disciples and for himself in John 17, verse 17, he says, sanctify them through the truth your word is true absolute truth absolutely i believe in the inspired trustworthy and authoritative word of god so a couple reminders of scripture as we close today i believe we are to live and speak the truth in love and, of course, that's Ephesians 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Of course, that's 2 Peter 3, verse 18, that says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded us, commanded us. In Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, you have to confess me before others. And if you don't, then I won't confess you before the Father. He didn't say that it, that's my truth, but you live by your truth. He said, this is the truth. This is the Father's will that is to be 
obeyed. And so as we share that, Peter tells us, we do that respectfully, considerately. But when people see us living lives of hope, because we're holding on to something as our anchor, we are standing on the promises of God. We are not basing it on something that might be here today and gone tomorrow. But we're basing it on absolute truth, the truth of God's word. Christ, the blessed one, gives to all wonderful words of life. Sinner, listen to his loving call. Wonderful words of life. This morning, if we can help you come to that Savior, come as we stand and sing our song together.